Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. There's no hero in solving complex challenges. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Janet DeValder and Steve Beatty of Meld Studios, an award-winning service design consultancy in Australia. Jenna, who grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and graduated from the University of Iowa, is founder, director, and principal designer at Meld. Steve, one of Meld's co-founders, is a highly experienced and seasoned leader in the design space. Both Steve and Jana have served in leadership roles for the IXDA, the International Interaction Design Association, and they share their journey in design to leading and co-founding Meld Studios with Ian Barker. We dig into themes of equity and ethics and design and what led to the Meld founders creating an employee-owned trust built on themes of longevity and equity for all Meldsters. I really appreciate their thoughtfulness and vulnerability in describing this latest phase of the business as that's still what Jana describes as a living experiment. We dig into themes of equity and curiosity as well as the traditional French sense of salon, an event that entertains and educates. I appreciated Jana and Steve navigating the time zone differences between Sydney and Iowa City to make this session happen. We were able to talk about the international connection to Ragbri, and I also appreciated how they would bear with me as we explored idiomatic expressions and the differences in English for Australians and Americans, as we explored the concepts of cutting the tall poppy, and perhaps Steve was playing a straight bat uh, when we talked about Midwestern salads. I love Steve and Jana's personal approaches for getting unstuck in their work. It was an honor and absolute pleasure having Jana and Steve join me on the show. So I've been a fan of their work since I first met Steve in 2016. Thanks, Jan and Steve, for taking the time and sharing your perspectives. I hope you enjoy the episode. Steve and Jana, thank you so much for joining me here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If uh, if you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves? And maybe we'll start with you, Jana. Sure. I love being on the Iowa podcast because I'm from Iowa originally. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa, as a matter of fact. Um, where, to, where to start? I'm currently living in Sydney, Australia with my uh, partner, Steve, that you'll hear from in a moment. Uh, And we run a company called Meld Studios, which is really focused on service design and organizational design and capability building. But I guess to get to that point, I studied psychology at the University of Iowa. (laughs) Did Did not have design in my sights at all. Um, actually was going on to the University of Chicago to study cultural psychology and, you know, thought, oh, I'm going to do the whole academic 
thing and gonna you know get the PhD and realize that that is that is no life for me. Um, and I I greatly respect the people who who do it. Um, that is that is a hard road. And uh, it was actually at the University of Chicago. Um, I was doing some side work as I was finishing my master's degree, and somebody. I still, he's still my friend, gave me an article about user experience. And he's like, have you heard about this thing called user experience? This was in 1998, 1999, early 1999. And I was like, it was immediately, it was, I was in the back of a cab printed out article about user experience, ironically. And I just had this moment of, oh, this is this mix of applied, you know, all the things that I love about psychology and behavior and sociology and mindset and, and, and why people do what they do and why people need what they need. And, and you can use that to actually help make things better. It was just like this head explosion. And so I was able to find my first job doing being a user experience designer in 1999 during the dot com boom. No, and that, the dot com bust. No, yeah. 2000 actually. <laughs> that's that's great. I know uh, when I was an undergrad uh, at Iowa, I started off as a broadcast and film and pre dentistry double major. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a filmmaker or an orthodontist. Uh, ended up doing neither, right? But it was it was also that the the notion of user experience was was foreign to me, right? It really wasn't discussed, and there wasn't a major mm -hmm. at the time where you could actually focus on that. Mm -hmm. Steve wanted to uh, check in with you. Do you mind telling guests a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, hello, everyone, and thanks for thanks for having us. We, um, I guess, uh, my my sort of uh, journey into things is a rambling one. I have um, a pretty eclectic uh, academic background, covering things like. Uh, a short stint studying medicine, um, a degree in applied mathematics and applied statistics. I studied archaeology for a, a year, went on field work around Sydney and out through the central Australian desert, um, got into helping people use uh, computer software, took a winding road um, and ended up where I am uh, at Meld Studios. Um, but I think the, the common thread through all of that, and the thing that sort of keeps me interested in the work that we're doing is just a general curiosity about how the world works, um, how, uh, people and systems interrelate and how we can go about making those things, uh, better, more equitable, um, for as many people as we can. Yeah, and thanks. And for just a little bit of context for for listening, I was lucky enough to meet you in uh, Louisville uh, for a uh, UX conference, and you were you were keynoting. Uh, but it was it was a pleasant surprise because uh, when we asked where each other were from, when I said Iowa, there was an excitement, which usually uh, most folks, when you say Iowa, there isn't that quite, they, they're trying to place it in some type of flyover state or one, one of the eyes. Uh, and uh, you, you right away, you, uh, I was surprised because you brought up Ragbri, and then it was a little bit later that I realized why you had such a strong connection. Uh, if 
if uh, either of you don't mind, uh, could you, how did how did you meet? Uh, and Jana, how did you end up in Australia? So it was a bit of a, a winding road, um, but Steve and I ended up meeting in the States and he ended up joining the IXDA board of directors. So at the time we had, a, I, was a, I was the president of IXDA at the time and we had a, a, an open slot for communications director and here comes Steve. And so it was through that, that our friendship really formed. And when we were getting to know each other and at the time, Steve was actually talking to our other business partner, Ian Barker, about starting up a company in Sydney. And we all started talking and we really were very copacetic around what we were trying to do. We could see that um, we all had had a heavily uh, digital um, digital design user experience um, grounding, I guess, in our careers but we were all at this precipice of understanding that as our career was progressing, the, the nature of the work was also changing or the, the, the scale and scope of, of where design could, could enter um, was changing. And that's really when we started to think about services and think about sort of the bigger, um, the bigger contexts of, of how we might apply design. And so it was through those conversations. You remember Google Wave? I think Google Wave was up for like two months. <laughs> Yeah. We literally, we literally designed our company <laughs> on Google Wave. Where is it now? I mean, it's gone. Clearly, it's very, very gone. Yeah. But it was a lot so of interesting. Our history is gone. History is gone. But we, we literally were, we were, we were describing. Well, what kind of, what kind of work do we want to do? But even more importantly, what kind of in work environment do we want to have? And we were describing things like, you know, Steve would say things like, I want it to feel like a design salon. Like, you know, people can come in and we could, you know, have, you know, like in, in France in the twenties where you had like this exchange of ideas and we were like, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and also there was a need because they were, they were getting approached. They were both working independently and they were getting approached and saying, you know, we would love to give you this work. We can see that you can really take on this work, but you're just one person. And we actually need, you know, the, 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 the task that we have is quite big. And so it was more around, like, how do we bring that together? And then Meld Studios was born 2009. I... I love it. And uh, one of the things I'll share is uh, at a previous company where I was a UX director, uh, periodically on Friday, and, and uh, Steve, sorry, this will mean more to Janet, but we would go to the mill on Fridays, we would leave work early. And we would we would have what we would call UX salon, and we would have a topic for conversation, but it was to get out of the, the standard kind of cubicle environment go sit and chat. But uh, what we had referenced to was uh, in, in France in the 20s, the idea of the salon was to educate and entertain. And yeah. that was that was a spirit on which we would have these, these conversations where we would pick either things from other design, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, patterns that we were seeing or trends or just other other things in the workplace. But uh, so I just love love hearing the the spirit of a salon and it it does make so much sense. Uh, so a little, 
after meeting Steve, I was a little bit of a meld lurker. So I've I've enjoyed following your your journey and and kind of racing from 2009 to uh, to today. One of the things that I find really compelling that you've been sharing is uh, the formation of an EOT. If if you don't mind, could you share? Uh, because I don't want to, you know, step on the the EOT, what that really means, but what it means to you, and and why that was so important. But to me, it's it's a really compelling and interesting story. Thank you. Um, do you mind if I go first, Steve? Go for it. So, you know, going from Google Wave in two thousand nine <laughs> to. Uh, to Sydney, Australia in 2019, end of 2019, um, here we had, we were coming into our 10th year and we, we were having conversations around, you know, of course there was an immense amount of pride. You kind of look back and you go, you feel a bit tired. <laughs> You're like, wow, how's it been 10 years, but equally, how's it not been 20 at the same time is, 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 um, small business owners will will all absolutely feel. Um, however, we started to think about, well, we're not we don't want to leave the company, but also this company is more than just the three of us. And so over the years we had have been approached three times by larger organizations wanting to kind of consume us to be a part of their of their ecosystem. And some were better, better ideas than others, but at the end of the day, we always felt like we really, we really feel very connected to our mission, which is to improve the everyday lives of people as they interact with the world around them and the culture that we had created. And we just knew the minute we would get consumed, it would be gone. It would be just basically shifting bodies rather than embodying who we are and losing that agency. And so we said, okay, well, if, if, if that's not the path we want, but also we know, you know, we need to create a, a succession plan. Uh, what are we going to do? And so we took the theme of longevity and we started to really think about, well, what does it mean to have longevity? And it was, this has to have a life beyond us. And so then we started to look at all the different, how do you have longevity? And it's like, well, you can just sell it to other people. But then you go, well, that's just passing the problem off to somebody else, right? We could sell to some of our meldsters, but then we're creating this sort of countercultural, I'm an owner, you're not an owner. And you start to create this dynamic inside, which again, which is what we have right now with the three of us being owners that we're trying to dissolve. So that, that wasn't, mm. that's not, that's not the problem. That's not the way to solve that. And so then we started looking at other sort of employee ownership models. And we came across employee owned by trust. And what that means is that at least 50% or more of your company is, is, is held in trust for the benefit of all employees. So what that means is that then employees have indirect ownership, meaning they don't have a share. You know, a lot of, I've worked at huge companies where they're like, come work for us, here's some shares. And you go, I'm never gonna see any value from that, but sure, like it, it's right, like, right. This, it, it feels like it's a, a sprinkle on that's meant to entice you. But you know, if you've been around the block enough, you know, like that's, that's not always <laughs> going to bear fruit. And again, it wasn't about the money. It was about 
actually being an owner. And a share is not the same as feeling ownership. And so we chose this model because we we loved the idea of one, we're not actually pushing the problem off to our employees where they then go, well, when I leave, now I have to sell my shares or anything like that. It's just, if you work here and you are a permanent meltster, you get benefit of ownership. That's it. And it starts to become a really simple equation. It's not, it's, it's, it's a process to become that, but it becomes a simple equation. And it's just suddenly unlocked a whole bunch of things for us where we go, Meld will own itself on behalf of its employees. It actually puts, it, it puts the mindset of ownership in, on everybody's, on everybody's you know, hat, so to speak. It's not just some of us. Um, but it's also not this whole group kitchen, like everybody's in the kitchen having to cook. So that's a that's a myth that we have to, to bust. But that that's really the the main the main driver think, is just that longevity. I think one of the things that you see, and and there's a lot of it happening in America at the moment, um, and it's you know it's a it's a long part of the the history of the industrial revolution and the history of um, capitalism right around the world is that you have this inherent tension in most organizations between like around around how profit is shared let's let's put it in those terms where does the benefit accrue when employees put in their best efforts when the company is successful who gains the benefit of that um and and you see it time and time again where that profit goes to people who are distant from the company, um, and increasingly, sort of small, a small share of that um, goes to the staff in in whatever form, be it in the form of um, pay rises or bonuses or a profit share or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's been this sort of global push over the last forty years where we've seen the bargaining power of staff and workers diminish and the bargaining power of shareholders, capital, um, increase. And you can see the change in the share of profit that has uh, happened over those 40 years where, you know, we're now at an all-time high in terms of the share of profit that goes to shareholders. Wages have been stagnant. It's certainly the case in America. They're In real terms, they're going backwards. In Australia, they're flat. Um, and, and it's it's because there's this inherent tension between who gets the spoils. Well, we've dissolved that tension. Because staff own the business, one way or another, whether they get it through salary or they get it through a share of the profits, they will get the fruit. We will all get the fruit of our labours. And when we're successful, that uh, goes to everybody equally. Um, and when we're less successful, then we're unable to pay that bonus. But the idea that I have to compete for a pay rise, that we need sort of collective bargaining to force the company to give us a pay rise and that we need to um, come together to force a change in um, policy around some kind of things. And I mean, we've, we've seen staff activists in US companies, you see it at Facebook where they want to change in policy, you see it at it's happening quite a lot. 
largely unsuccessfully, we've set up a mechanism whereby those two things are completely aligned. So we have the governance structures in place, the profit um, share structures in place, so that there is quite direct alignment between what the business does, how the business performs, and everybody's ability to share in that. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of the fact that we've gone down that path. But I also think it's a really interesting experiment in how that very traditional tension between labour and capital can play out with a different mindset. I, I really I appreciate all that context and, and, and it's such an inspiring story on, on what you've done and, and a couple things that are just resonating with me too. One is, as you said, the uh, kind of playing with a theme or principle of longevity. And I, I really appreciate that. And then that was making me think, Steve, too, after your comments, too, about kind of capitalism and industrial revolution, which in, in human scale is still really a blip, right? But it... It, it it it's taken on so many kind of uh, anti-humane outputs, and so I, I really appreciate you know how you've brought that together. And then also as a as a designer and business owner myself, one of the things that I read that I appreciate too is uh, almost from an empathy standpoint that uh, and kind of mindset is that now the Meltzers are are all wearing two hats, right? As a mm-hmm. as a designer, but also as a a business owner. And I think what that does to maybe broaden one's perspective. And I'm I'm just guessing, but thinking from a, a team or group dynamic too, it it really kind of puts everybody more on a level, kind of collaborative perspective, or, or at least maybe that's the hope, but uh, what what have what have you experienced or felt, or what has the feedback been thus far? So I think you, you bring up an interesting point, Matt, I guess, in terms of you can, you can functionally become employee owned by trust and still run your company in a very hierarchical way. You could do that. It's actually, it, it, it feels antithetical to, to do that, however. So um, we have found in our, our research of looking at other companies that have become EOTs or employee-owned by trust, that there, there tends to be some threads here. One is there's a, a thread of transparency. And so in order to have an owner's mindset, you have to understand what's going on in the business itself. And so while we have historically been quite transparent. I think we've dialed it up to a open book, um, open book uh, point where everybody knows our financial state. Everybody knows how much money we have in the bank, how much money we've got in savings, how much, you know, how much, um, how much things are going, you know, how much tax is going out almost to the point where maybe for some people it's like, I, I, I kind of just want to do my job and not know all of the, like, is it really that hard to run a business? Actually it is now you get to know too. Um, so there is kind of this, like, oh, the, the murky underbelly of business is being exposed. The benefit of that though, and it's not just the financial side, but it's also around pipeline and, and how, and how you attract work. And so um, off the back of this, we've, we've really focused in on, 
there's six areas that we have to have an eye on to make sure that our business is thriving and that we're actually meeting our mission. And that's around, we have to attract, um, attract good work. We have to deliver good work. Um, we have to attract great people. We have to sustain great people. We have to have a sustainable business. So we have to be, you know, having sustainable business practices. And then we also have our advocacy. Um, and really our advocacy is around um, how do we make sure that the work that we are taking on is, you know, we have due diligence on who, you know, who we're working with, the kind, the nature of the work that we're, that we're working on, and also trying to build into our practice more and more. How do we make sure that we're not actually reinforcing bias, um, that we're not reinforcing all of the things that the, you know, the UN sustainability goals are trying to, to counter. And so it, it's almost, and I need to find another analogy because I really, it's, I don't like this one, but you know, Charlie's angels where they have their backs to each other and then they're all, they're all holding their guns. I need a different analogy. So if anybody has one, please share it. But it, it's like collectively we can have a view across everything because we know that we're looking at we're looking across those parts and so having that structure now really focuses in and, and I think look we are still in the process of in, you know bringing this to life and we are a living experiment right now we we you know and how do we make decisions and and now we have an employee forum and we have employee representation on the board of directors now and also on our trust board and so we've got a lot of new things and it's you know, we're trying to figure out what does this mean? And so um, there's no flipping the switch and suddenly you're on. I mean, we are in the midst of not, I, I just heard somebody talk about, it. it's not transformation, it's renovation. It's, it's you know, we're, we're building off of the good, the good bones that we already had, but we are, we are definitely in a flux. And now. while you're still in business, right? It's not like you can oh, yeah. pause or stop. <laughs> And then here's here's how we're we're gonna, gonna oh, yeah. gut the building and everybody can come back in and here's what it's gonna look like. It's still oh, no. wild. We're, things we are, are living, we are living in the building. <laughs> the roof is off, and it and you know I think it's a really good point. Like things are things can be raw. The beauty of this transparency and openness, you know, and 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 how we're trying to have decisions. You know, decisions can be led from anywhere. And I, you know, I, and I know everybody says ideas can come from anywhere, but we're really like, if you want to make something happen, go, go talk to the people that that decision will impact, build up a case and, and bring it forward. So, but I think we're all, we're all feeling our way through it. And in our spirit, we are, we're going to get, we're going to keep sharing that with everybody because to think that it's just this beautiful, like, become an EIT and turn the light on and, and ta-da is, would be the, like one of the biggest lies. Um, it's, it's a lot of hard work. However, it bears fruit. And so I think it was with many good things. Um, you just have to, to keep moving through it and keep talking about it. So it just keeps us connected and quite open, I think. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. And uh, so I'm a bit of a both a, a beekeeping nerd and a, a sense making nerd. And so a lot of what I'm hearing too is, right, is how you, you balance uh, and, and uh, I'll, I'll see your Charlie's Angels and give you an, uh, some words that I don't like. But one of the things that I find fascinating with bees is how they can elegantly move between explore and exploit. 
when they're looking for resources, mm-hmm. but uh, how, and you know, stealing from Tom Seeley, but the, the honeybee democracy on essentially all the workers in the colony become nodes on a network Right for a democratic argument that I mean the queen idea is a misnomer of some type of monarchy uh, that there's an mm. interesting balance between both the the perception of the queen and the queen also uh, relative to the workers but uh, the way that they they're able to move and and that each one has an opportunity to be an information node on this network mm. on where resources might be or even when it's time to swarm and where they might go all all comes down to to workers making uh, uh, kind of information-based arguments rather than, you know, kind of campaign sloganeering. So I was just, but <laughs> as, as you're going through the sense-making, I was just thinking like the, the rough process, right, from is that you have to explore a wider system, you have to map mm-hmm. or visualize that system, but then you have to live in that system and experiment to learn. And so I just really totally. appreciate too that you're, it sounds like you're doing all that, but really you, you're you in the middle of the experiment and learning as you go. Oh, for sure. And I think I've, maybe, maybe it's age. I don't know. Maybe it's just, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I, I, we're not, we don't design fixed systems. We shouldn't be. I think, I think sometimes when we get into this sort of project-based thinking, we kind of think that there's a beginning and an end, but really, you know, we are constantly, constantly moving and the, the idea of a fixed anything, I think is, is quite, I mean, except some, some software can feel quite fixed. So I'm, I'm not gonna, I know everybody's like, oh, I can think of a lot of things that are pretty fixed and that's just so, um, but yeah, I think that there's something around, um, we have to be willing to, to, to go into this uncertain, but trusting that, that we're at least directionally aligned on the intention and that we're setting up structures to be checking in and learning and ensuring that it's actually the right thing. And if it's not, we, we have set it up so that it can shift. Not, I'm not saying shift away from EAT, but that how we manage that can shift. Yeah, I love the I love the worker bee thing too. That, uh, th- thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, the the um, the notion to just thinking about time and as you said, like backing up to from a, a design like for my early days of design, it was early like you know Web 1.0, and so it so in some ways it was very, it was in, and kind of this naivete that I had was we're you know, like almost a designer could do no wrong. We're just making the system easier to use. Aren't we good people? Right. And then yeah. getting a little bit older and seeing, you know, more of a, a system view, more of a longer timeline and, and looking at uh, really coming to gri- for me personally, coming to grips with unintended consequences from uh basic design choices that we made and so those those are some of the things i think about you know just you know being on this side of my career also and Mm. and that everything is so interconnected now Mm. or much more interconnected digitally than it was uh so how Mm. that changes the scope and having that you said that appreciation for truly complex problems right because it's shifting while you're working on it it it's the world's not going to stand still for you, but you're trying to do the best you can with your understanding of the problem. And so that's why uh, I love the theme too, that Steve, you had mentioned earlier, just like the notion of curiosity, right? A spirit of curiosity. And uh, 
to me that that fits with somewhat cliched term, but falling in love with the problem, not the solution. And how can we always chip away and get better at the way we address a problem? And so to me, it. I, I apologize because the, the conversation is gone so meta, just that uh, designers owning a design studio, designing the business right, and keeping the business going. There's so many different uh, layers there that I just, I, I find fascinating. It's a, it's a hell of a challenge that we've um, given ourselves. I think the, the easier way to do it would have been simply to continue on as we were for another, you know, sort of five or 10 years and um, find one of those uh, companies um, who was willing to throw a chunk of money at us and, and walk away. Um, but it's not, um, I don't think that's consistent with who we are as individuals and it's not consistent with what we're trying to achieve as a business. So we've headed down the, the more difficult path, um, but it's one I think we're, we're pretty committed to seeing be successful. Thank you. Uh, playing a little bit off of Charlie's Angels and uh, my ham-fisted explore exploit is I'm all, I'm a big fan of language and labels and uh, both the pros and cons. Uh, and related to that is I love idiomatic expressions. So thinking about uh, well, well, one would argue right that we're all speaking English here, but I'm kind of curious on idiomatic expressions. Uh, U.S. to Australia and Australian to U.S. Just uh, for either of you, if Jenna, you don't mind. Jenna has had such a hard time moving to Australia and being surrounded by Australians. She has had such a hard time. And every now and again, she'll sit there and go, I'm sorry, what the hell did you just say? What, what was that? <laughs> and vice versa. I mean, I think just even i mean and it's the silly it's the silly stuff some of it i remember when we first started in 2009 i was actually still living in i was in georgia at the time for the first six months of our company and i somebody sent a client sent me an email saying can we can we speak can we speak in the arvo and i was like oh my god is that a place is that it, you know, in, is it a room? Um, I have no idea. So, you know, Google was definitely my friend. Okay. It's the afternoon, the afternoon. Okay, great. Yes, 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 yes. I can speak in the afternoon. The worst, the worst one though, and this is, you know, if maybe if you're from Iowa, you'll, you'll know tailgate casserole. I love casserole. <laughs> I love, I love salads. Um, and it, it called for tomato sauce. Um, and so I went and bought tomato sauce and I made this casserole with tomato sauce. And then when I was eating said casserole, I realized that tomato sauce is ketchup in Australia. So I had made a whole casserole with an entire, an entire container of, of ketchup. That's probably not what you were looking for, Matt. No, no, those, those, those are, those, those are great. I know for, for me, um, uh, a, a, you know, a colleague that I had worked with for a while who was from Australia, I remember one phrase that is still stuck out with me. And so I'm always curious too, if, so, if somebody's pulling my leg and making something up. So I'll vet this one with you. Uh, cutting the tall poppy. Is that a, is that an Australian oh, phrase? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Top, that's a tall whole poppy syndrome. Cultural, that's a whole <laughs> cultural way of being for us. Absolutely. 
it's not even a saying it's you you don't ever get too big-headed don't ever think that you're so great you think you're so great we're gonna pull you right down we're gonna just oh that's that's very cultural we're very happy to celebrate people's successes up to the point where you know it (laughs) and that's and at that point once you lose that sense of you know your humble beginnings or your sense of modesty or your place in the world not not so good anymore so what i'm hearing is we'll let you know that you're successful we you don't need to tell us you're successful right we'll yes. we'll be the judge of that and we'll we'll, we'll be a, a yes. dampening agent on this as well yes yes so imagine imagine you know the the perception of americans in a in a culture that has you know that that i mean obviously this is a very multicultural culture so i think we're we're, we're, we're talking about a sliver a, right, a, right. a sliver really in this but um there's yeah the um, americans are sort of the the antithesis of or, or not the antithesis that's the wrong word it's it's they they, they are the embodiment of Everybody thinks they're a tall poppy when they, they have no reason to to <laughs> actually believe that. We're so but great. The, the, <laughs> the, the idiom thing was was complicated, I think, by the fact that our third business partner is English. Oh. Um, and he's and he's quite English. And whilst he and I have <laughs> um, some you know sort of uh, shared language um, through sporting analogies like cricket, um, you know cricket analogies just fall uh, largely um on deaf ears for for janet like it just doesn't land um in a lot of cases and she's gotten much better over the years um she's gotten much better thank you absolute need (laughs) yeah look you know um i'm rolling my eyes for those listening i I can yes (laughs) um but like well i would say a cricket analogy would be lost on me as well i mean i know i know the sport exists i know a lot of people like exists. it uh yes. yeah and so i and, uh, yeah i don't yes. mean that in a but yeah i'm aware of the sport but i feel like sometimes for yes. me also being a be a big fan of ice hockey a lot of times when i talk about hockey to folks especially in the in mm-hmm. uh in iowa hockey analogies fall flat yes. <laughs> right but if i say something like you know he's playing a straight bat I'm assuming that's a good I, I thing. Is that good? I, well, so... it, 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 <laughs> oh, bitch, like, bash, Bob. This is... Bob. Bob's your uncle. Oh, I, bash, somebody bash, used uh, that uncle. one. I'm still yes. not. Can you help me with Bob's your uncle? I, it, my, if I'm remembering, oh. does it imply simplicity? There you go. It's there like, you go. It essentially it's, means it's, there I, you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it. I, I struggle to to complete. It's like sometimes so I, I learned German early on, and like you know, there's just some words, there's some feelings that you can only convey in German, and you can't literally like. There's really just not a way to convey it. That that is a very English, I guess, saying, British saying, and I can use it, but I don't. I don't think I could explain why. <laughs> Well, there you go. And uh, yeah. Germans, what I think they do really well with is here's two different words. We're just going to smush both words. We're just going to put both words together to convey that idea. Convey a feeling. Yeah. Yes. 
um, and the, the the German word that does it for me every time time is doch, which is like it's it, the only way I can describe it in English is yaha, yaha. So if you say you can't, if Matt, you said you can't do that, I would say doch. Yaha, I can. <laughs> So, uh, did you, did you uh, export any uh, any Iowa uh, English to to Australia? Are there any, Steve? Are there any phrases that have made you scratch your head that probably make sense to Iowans? Salad. Yeah, the concept. What, 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 what constitutes a salad? Salad, salad <laughs> is definitely something that we don't have a shared definition of. Jello um, salad. Yeah, I'm exactly. Very, I'm very, I'm very um, Yeah, there's a lot in there that sort of, you know, the, the ingredient list for what constitutes a salad is is a lot broader. Um, I'm from very what I've Midwestern. Seen. Yes. Yeah. 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 And but we were uh, also laughing. We were also laughing the other day um, at uh, the phrase. Oh, sorry. Oh. Um, which I, which I, I was, I was chuckling at. Yeah. I didn't realize how much I say, oh, sorry, until I saw this little meme. And I just thought, I had this, you know, having your whole life, I'm 46, I had this whole like life flash in front of me. I was like, I've been saying that my whole life. I say, I say it here. And I just, I don't even hear it. It's bizarre. I, yeah, ope, uh, ope and whelp are very big Midwestern terms, right? And then you you kind of are painting a, a path or a swath into Canada. I have a, a good friend who... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, a close <laughs> friend of mine grew up in, in Quebec. And uh, so that that also becomes a little bit more interesting too, is, is French-Canadian translated yes. to English and and then <laughs> us both trying to piece together what the other person's talking about uh, side by each that is one of my favorite things that I've heard like uh, that's side by side but when a friend Aww. will be talking about things next to each other he goes there they are side by each <laughs> I've never heard that I love that no that's a new one for me as well yeah <laughs> so uh, want to talk thanks so much for sharing kind of the the journey of I'm curious both of you as just uh, designers that I respect. Uh, I'm always curious when I talk to folks on the show is, do you ever feel stuck? And what are your personal, if so, what are your techniques for getting unstuck? And you can just say, Matt, I'm a damn professional. I never get stuck. Uh, but if you, you if you me? do feel stuck, how, how do you get yourself unstuck when it comes to design or business challenges? I would love Steve to go first because... <laughs> I'm stuck every day, so I've got I've, I've got plenty of, of things. Steve, my um, sort of my go-to technique is to simply step away from whatever it is I'm trying to do. Um, like as as simple and as difficult as that might be, to just go and do something else. Um, I, I I learned that while studying mathematics. Um, there are some concepts in mathematics that just take time to wrap your head around. Um, and that process of thinking about it happens way back here um, when you let the front of your brain stop thinking about it. So going for a walk, going for a bike ride, reading a book, um, just doing something other than that thing that you're really stuck on 
Um, and at some point you'll find that that process of cogitation will reach a point where you go, okay, now I'm, now I'm ready to, to tackle that. And it, it might be, um, when I'm writing an article or preparing a presentation, it might be when I'm trying to understand, um, uh, and, insight from some research and sort of, you know, how best to articulate it or what is it really trying to say? Um, but I, I, I find just stepping away from it, um, and really just ignoring it and, and not thinking about it, um, helps enormously for me. I appreciate that. I had a mentor that uh, similar to that. Sometimes you'd say, let it breathe just to, mm. to get away from it a while. And, and I, I appreciate what you're saying too. It's, it's let a different part of the brain process that for a while or, or, or let it percolate mm. and see, see where you end up. Janet, how about mm. you? Well, I, I have, I have a couple. Uh, I think one is, um, I think I, along with many people, we are notoriously hard on ourselves. And sometimes, especially I think as you progress in your career, you start to for, you start to feel like somehow that you have to just know the answers to things. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And one, I think we're doing disservice, especially to the um, to the younger designers that we work with, because it it can seem like, oh, you, you always have the answer. And so one is to say, I don't know, or to, to actually, I, I do say a lot. I said, I'm having a human moment of like, I'm not sure. Um, so that's, that's one thing is to actually say when you don't know something, of course, there's certain moments where, you know, I know we have this whole thing around sort of fake it till you make it, or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to convey um, uncertainty while also conveying confidence that I know I can figure it out. So I think that that's, there's a real art there to one being direct, especially with your clients to say, I'm not sure about that. I have some other things that I can go and lean on and, and draw from. And I know that there's, I, I can see the end of where we'd be to try to get to, but let's figure this out. The other one is to try is doing it together is to, you know, really in, in we talk so much about co-creation and co-design and actually, you know, working with the people who are going to be impacted. You have to remember that you don't have to be the expert in everything. And actually you're not. So there's, this is my, my second one would be, there's no hero in solving complex challenges. Like no one person, if one person can solve a challenge, it's really well understood. Exactly. Yeah, I love that. It's so you need each other. And so I think it's it's looking at maybe looking at how something was solved in a completely different industry for a different complete completely different problem space that might have some kind of similarities to kind of inspire you or whatever. So but I think the first thing is going, it's okay to not know. It's okay to say that you don't know. It's also okay to convey a confidence that I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And like people, people love that, right? Cause it's like, okay, you're a human being who's not just making stuff up. Yeah. And it, it's a wonderful, in my opinion, a wonderful balance of both vulnerability and optimism, yes. right? It's like, yes. yeah, I, I, I don't know. And it's almost like it would, it would be malpractice if I just gave it, I might even talk through my gut is telling me, but 
yes. you know, we'll, we'll go figure this out, right? It's like the collectively let's, and, and we can lean on, on different, different folks that have different skill sets. And I like the, what I was hearing in there too, is almost leaning on other systems. Like here's how sure. this problem has been addressed by this industry or this type of work, you know, is there, is there inspiration there kind of, you know, one for me is like just the notion of biomimicry is like, how is, mm. how has nature solved this? Uh, can mm. we, can we find a, a, a solution there? Mm. Uh, and we, and we're, so, also, we're also fortunate, sorry, Matt, we're yeah. also fortunate in that even in lockdown and Sydney is currently sort of in, in the midst of what's going to be at least an eight week, um, uh, lockdown. Um, Jenna and I can still walk through the door and talk to one another and go, I'm struggling with this. I just want to get it out of my head and talk to somebody about it. And then, you know, and, and that, that act of articulating it can actually yeah. help to go, Oh, actually that's, I've, I've got it now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I can, I can go back and I love that. I feel like it's the tech equivalent of sometimes when something seems broken for me, but then as soon as I like call the help desk or call, you know, that, Oh no, it's working. Never mind. <laughs> but that process of just stopping for a second and, and reapproaching it. Uh, you had mentioned going for a bike ride as one of your techniques. So just for both of you to put kind of sense of time and place on what we're, we're in rag season right now in, know. in Iowa. I know. I so uh, it is. We were, we were meant to go. We were meant to go. I think it was 2019 in July. We were. Was that 2019 or 2018 that we were planning on going, Steve? One of those. I've got the the entry here somewhere still. But then he. But then he he broke. He broke something. Dislocated my shoulder after I got knocked off my bike by a car. Actually. I, yeah, I remember talking to you. Actually, talking to you about that. That was one of our conversations yeah. because you had had plans to, to do Ragbri. Uh, Let's just be clear, though, Matt. I was going to be driving the the RV. I was going to be part of the support the support bus. I'm, I I admire everybody who rides, and let's, let's, I, I love a good party. Let's also be clear, you were going to be taking that bus and visiting friends and family all across Iowa while I was riding. So, you know, there was there's something in it for both of us as well. Well, we were supposed to be stopping in Indianola on the, that year. And so we were going to be staying with my cousin. So like we, we actually had fresh beds even planned. No, no, no tents. Uh, we, uh, a couple of years ago, they stopped in Iowa City and... Uh, um, uh, our kids were away at camp and uh, so we were a host family. We had some beds set up in the basement Oh wow! and you know, we have a, we have a, a bathroom and shower in the basement and, and air conditioning. And uh, you know, we were able to chat with folks for a while, you know, as they were staying here and then, then saw them off in the morning, but it was uh, there's such a, uh, a fun, weird, <laughs> but just delightfully folksy, like here's strangers. <laughs> never met uh, i'm giving them a cool comfortable in. bed and a shower and how just grateful they are for that it's it was fun you know and one of the uh their their support driver had been in the been a cook in the navy for like 20 plus years and so just sharing different stories about his his experiences and and just things that you wouldn't have just 
in in your day to day life, right? So it was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, being a host family was was pretty or a host host house, I think. But uh, yeah, that was that was fun, uh, and I, keep, I hope they um, come back through Iowa City again. Yeah, we, we keep pushing our plans next year. Next year, at the moment, so we will we we will get there and we will do it. Um, I'm, I'm bringing a bunch of Aussies to Iowa. All right. We, we yeah. Are. Again, I hope I hope it's Iowa City because uh, yeah. Obviously, you have you have family in front, but uh, yes. just so you know that there would uh, cold cold beverages at least would be would be provided. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll definitely be in Iowa City for sure. I want to thank both of you so much for uh, taking the time to to join me on the podcast, uh, indulging me with the the questions about the employee-owned trust because I just find this fascinating and uh, playing a little bit with with the English language in all its forms, whether it's U.S., English, Australian, Iowan. <laughs> I really appreciate having both of you uh, on the show. Thanks, man. It's been wonderful, Matt. And I will just say. You can become an EOT in the U.S. as well. In the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Japan, I think India. I think there's some countries are starting to set up these structures as well. So don't just think that this is a Australia thing. No, that's absolutely that, not. That's great. I have a few friends that have been working on a, a new uh, um, an L3C business in the states, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, trying to uh, basically thread the needle between for profit and nonprofit. Uh, basically, yeah. for profit, but with social good. Um, but you can't right now. You cannot uh, incorporate that way in the state of Iowa. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like the tax dodging that happens by setting up in the Dakotas or Delaware. But uh, not not in this case tax dodging. But uh, unfortunately, uh, my friend then incorporate in Illinois. Uh, so mm. we're, we're trying to get Iowa on board with the uh, kind of that more humane kind of longer term view of both business. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. 